Hey, welcome back. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here. How are you, buddy? I am well, sir. We're doing that fun thing where we actually get to record in the same room. It is fun. Yeah. Every once in a while. Yeah, every Although so it probably often. sounds a little weird for people because the echo and whatever. A little bit of echo. We got we got drapes. We'll do the best we can. It is a hotel room in Oslo. <laughs> what more right. can you do? That's right. Well, uh, this is going to be a good show. We were talking about it just before we started recording. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got an interesting little website for you for Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Icanhas.net core. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't have done this before because you were worried you might have done it before because it's so funny. Yeah, right? but I looked it up in the database and I did not. So um, it's the website is Icanhas dot dot net. All right, so Icanhas dot dot net. And the idea is, can I port my application to .NET Core? Awesome. And what you do is you choose your package files, um, packages.config, project.json, and packet.dependencies. And they basically run some tests and see if you're eligible for .NET Core. Interesting. This reminds me of the work you did way back when, mapping Silverlight classes to WPF classes. Oh, yeah, right. That's right. It was for Windows 8. Yeah, back in the day. Yep. So that's a very cool thing, and there's a demo even, and uh, it's free. Awesome. Yep. Well, and I also think this is going to get um, very relevant when Core 2 comes along. Yeah. When Standard 2 is really hit, because that seems to be the one right. where the set's going to get so big that unless you're doing something wonky, your app should probably come straight across. And everybody's going to want to port. Everybody. Well, I mean, you there's know, so many advantages to going to core. And not just a cross-platform thing. Yeah. But I also get the sense that Microsoft's starting to think, why are we running two frameworks? Like, mm. if, if they can make it painless so that most people can get across, yeah. then it'll, they'll, they'll go down to one framework. I know for, some people are freaking out about that, but I'm yeah. like, eh. You know, they've taken pretty good care of us in the past. I'm going to bet on them taking good care of us again. Yep. Nice yep. find, dude. Thanks. So who's talking to us, buddy? I uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1442. That's the last geek out we did on hypersonic vehicles. Mm. And uh, a lot of good comments on that show. But this one particular one's from Gert, who says, Hey, guys, very cool geek out as usual. This is not something relevant to the topic at hand, although that's not true. But a cool technology, nonetheless, is Sabre, which is the synergistic air-breathing rocket engine. Mm. An engine being developed to achieve single stage to orbit, launch like an airplane, fly all the way to LEO. <laughs> now, and I did comment when when he wrote that comment a while back mm-hmm. saying, yeah, we did talk about that engine from Reaction Labs uh, right. and back on episode 1403, which is not that long ago. Yep. Of course, just because you're building an engine doesn't mean you're going to get single stage to orbit. And we're going to talk about this for the next hour or so, because that's a much harder problem than just building an engine. What is interesting about Reaction Labs, well, they've been proposing a vehicle called Skylon, which is a single stage to orbit vehicle for is that years. Like Cylon from Battlestar Galactica, a play on that, or do you think? I don't know if it's a play on it. It's certainly spelt the same way, uh. but it's spelt with an S. I, it may actually, it's been around for a long time. It may even predate the mm. new Battlestar Galactica in some respects. But if you recall from 1403, I talked about the fact, like I've always looked at Reaction 
labs and that whole thing as just more tinfoil hat stuff. Yeah. Like just crazy guys who are, I can build a spaceship, right? Right. Like (laughs) put the EM drive guys in that category, like all these people that supposedly have things. And amazing how many of them are British. I don't know why that Hmm. is. Hmm. Uh, is I I just sort of put them in a stack of unlikely to amount to anything category, (laughs) right? But you weed the papers as they come and buy and the EM drive is particularly contentious. And I know people want me to make a show, but it's like, dude, there's no science there. I'm sorry. We are inside the air probability of error categories for everything about that so far yeah uh even if there is hype machines and fake news out there trying to make it more than it is and it's being suppressed it's just not true okay and and i dropped saber and reaction labs right in that category until the u.s air force dropped a big pile of money on them really and it's money to fund a fighter jet sky uh, saber engine so the the one they want to build is a big one. It's like a hundred thousand pound thrust engine. So you're telling me, without any science, the U.S. government was convinced enough to throw money at them? Well, not no science. They haven't actually built a, an engine yet, but they did build the precooler. So the concept behind this engine, and it's madness to even talk about it. But <laughs> ponder this. I mean, really, really. Let me get this straight. Like that's that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. Don't, don't, and again, strip all the hype away. Let's talk about the essence of this engine. We're going to build a rocket engine running on liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, right? Yeah. Only we're not going to carry the liquid oxygen. We're going to make it. Extract it it from the air. In the air as we fly. Right. That's insane. That is crazy. Except for the part where they built the pre-cooler. Okay. And is that arguably the hardest part? With the part that, the part that most scientists, when you said you're going to do this, says you cannot create you cannot condense air fast enough to make it worthwhile. Right. And so they built this precooler, which is basically pumping liquid helium mm. around very fine tubes that cools the air right. in in milliseconds down to liquid categories. Like it's it's in realms. Is it likely? Uh, but it's enough that you're sort of like, okay, so in comes the US Air Force and says, all right, we got some money we want, but build us a smaller one. Right. Yeah. Don't try and go for your big 150,000 pound thrust engine. Build us a 40,000 pound thrust engine, like really the size of a fighter jet engine. Yeah. Because, and again, forget the SSTO thing. This is a rocket engine. So it's not doing turbine compression and burning or anything like that. This is literally rocket repellent, but sucking the liquid oxygen out of the air, which means your mass fraction for fuel goes down, which means this is a much more efficient vehicle. Like just in terms of building a Mach 5 fighter plane that would mm. fly steadily at 100,000 feet, mm. this is more feasible okay, and more reasonable. And so in that sense, it's it's kind of interesting. I keep the notes around. They've raised a fair bit of money. They're actually going to bend some metal now. They can make that smaller motor and it works. Who knows what happens after that? So you got to now take it out of the pile of, yeah, right, and put it in a we'll watch you for a w- while pile? W- watching closer, right? Yeah. So right now they're in their first phase where they're actually trying to build the core engine parts beyond the pre-cooler. That's going on today. They have the money for that. Mm. We'll have supposed to have testing in about 18 months. Mm. So again, I'm watching to see do they make those tests. Mm. In the 2020 timeframe, so three years from now, they should be ready to do a full integration engine test. Mm. And that would be, because this engine should be able to run on ground. Right. Unlike a lot of more difficult engines, like we talked about in the previous show with scramjets and things like that, where mm. it's very hard to run them on ground. Yeah. This should be a ground runnable engine. But the number of pl- places, and again, this is the show that this com- was commented on, the hypersonic vehicles, the number of ways that various militaries and other groups are trying to build a Mach 0 to 5 vehicle. That is the goal. And every solution up till now, it's multiple engines. 
turbo right. jets to 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 the er, the low sonics, mm. then ram jets to the high sonics, and then mm. scram jets at the hypersonics. Right? right. This engine, if it worked as they're proposing, is a single engine solution. Wow. So it could be. I mean, the potential is huge. The potential is huge. I mean. Again, the Skylon pitch has almost hurt it that we're going to fly all the way into orbit. But if you just said, hey, from ground to Mach 5.5, one engine, yeah, that's important yeah. all by itself. So that's really, you know, what they did there. And it's, uh, I don't, is it worthy of a show? I mean, I'm, I, one of the reasons I read this comment is I wanted to talk a little bit about it because it doesn't fit into any other category. Mm. And SSCO a single stage to orbit, it's just kind of fictional. Mm. Like there's so many problems. And I would argue now it almost doesn't make sense with what we're able to do. Now that you can retrieve first stages and SpaceX has shown us this, right. who cares about multi-stage if everything's recoverable? <laughs> so, you know, different concept. Anyway, Gert, I hope that answers your question. I'm sure it does. And uh, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. Because we, Publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there, we read it on the show. We'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We can has them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You ready? I'm ready. Um, I, I, You know, a couple hours ago, you said... How, do, how does military space planes hit you? And I'm first of all, I've never even heard of a military space plane. Yeah. Besides the, maybe the SR-71 is about as close as I've we've heard yeah, us and talk and, about military. And the X-15 sort of fell, fell, fell in that category as well. Yeah, they, they got up there they a did. little bit. Um, and the SR-71 did not get as high as the X-15 because it was a rocket plane, but it certainly was a remarkable uh, vehicle. But you're talking about space planes, meaning that these are military jets, whatever, so that almost become space orbital well and don't presume manned either what yeah. we're talking about is and and i did not set out to write this show this show emerged as i was gathering notes mm. right which is funny at the same the uh, i was originally talking about building a show around two stage to orbit because now that you have these first stages like spacex that are recoverable yeah what if the upper stage simply flew into orbit which is what he Elon's proposing with the ITS, the giant rocket too. It's just the second yeah. stage goes to orbit. Yeah. It's, it is the payload and it's a sort of a different way of thinking about it. So, mm -hmm. but as I was exploring that, I kept bumping into the military needs for space flight, which are different from the civilian needs, mm -hmm. whether it's commercials payloads or scientific payloads. The military has some fairly unusual needs and it has actually affected a lot of vehicles. Like you say, you don't mm -hmm. know of a military space plane. The space shuttle was going to be a military space plane as well. Mm. But I mean, I guess, you know, I look at the space shuttle as sort of a rocket in a, in a spaceship. Yes. More than a space plane. Well, it was a, it, it was a stack that, that yeah. with an orbiter that flew back like an aircraft. Yeah. I and, guess you're right. And that, and, yeah. and a non trivial amount of the specifications on the space shuttle came from the military. Mm. At NASA ran out of money in the 70s for funding the development. The vehicle was more complicated than expected. It was harder to do and so forth. And they turned to the U.S. Air Force and said, hey, we plan on building this space plane that's going to be reusable, that's going to be able to fly every week. I mean, they op they op offered the world here, but we need more money to make it happen. Yeah. And the Air Force said, well, look, we need to be able to launch lightweight payloads quickly and yeah. of certain sizes and capabilities. If you think about what 
the military cares about in space is that the satellite network that allows their military to communicate mm -hmm. and allows uh, and gives it surveillance on where things right. are and how they're moving around. Go back to Gulf War One, right? And tracking the ballistic missiles that right. they were shooting down, right? Then that was that was all space based assets. Yeah. And there's a serious concern by the military, and it has been for many, many years, of the ability for enemy actors to shoot down those satellites and effectively blind mm. or limit the communications of the of the U.S. military. Or hack into them, as we're seeing now, is becoming a... A, a, a whole other level of the issue, yeah. which may be a better solution than just knocking them out of the sky. Right. And so the Air Force was very concerned about their ability to replace satellites quickly. Hmm. And typically, your turnaround time to launch uh, a, a satellite if it's a one-of-a-kind satellite, like many spy satellites are, it's literally years, hmm. four or five years to get it ready. Commercial payloads with standard satellites, it's still at least two years. Huh. Now, in a case of, uh, of military crisis, if you've got satellites in stock and you've got standard launchers and you have them already sized, you can get that down to a few weeks. But that's still too slow if you're fighting an attrition war. Yeah, that's right. You want to turn it around fast. And remember that the proposal for the space station was weekly turnarounds. So mm -hmm. if you have four or five of them, you could have be flying almost every day. Wow. And the mission that the Air Force outlined for the shuttle, one that it never, ever flew, but was outlined for the shuttle to fly, is a very unique mission. So the shuttle was big enough to carry three satellites at a go. Mm -hmm. So it's a time of war, the, whoever they're fighting. Mm. The enemy has shot down a bunch of your surveillance or communication satellites, mm. and you need to replace them quickly. Mm -hmm. So you set up a shuttle with three satellites flying out of Vandenberg Air Force Base. This is in California on the yep. West Coast. And that base is used to launch polar orbits. So instead of flying okay. east, you're going to fly south. Right. Now, you don't want your shuttle shot down. That's kind of a big deal. Kind of. Kind of don't want to have that happen. <laughs> and so you fly this very aggressive course where as you climb out and get to, to orbit altitude, but have not actually circularized your orbit, you're now high enough to start launching those satellites. You fire those satellites mm. out, and then you begin your deorbit immediately. Really? So you don't even go around. You're you not even going to finish a whole orbit. You're, you go up, make an arc, drop the payload, come back down. And then come back down around to land back at Vandenberg Air Force Place. Wow. So you're going to fly south, launch your payload by the time you're over the South Pole, and then begin your braking maneuvers coming over the North Pole to land back at Vandenberg Air Force Base. But wow. there's a problem. Of course there is. The planet is rotating. Yes. And so by the time you've done the 90 minutes of going around, Vandenberg is now about 1,500 miles to the east. <laughs> and so you have to make a gigantic left turn. Yeah. Which is why the shuttle has big wings. Oh. Those wings were not needed for any other mission huh. than the Air Force mission. Wow. It had to make this huge downrange turn. And mm. to be able to do that, it was going to use the atmosphere to do it. Now, they always used the wings. A, they were there. Mm. And B, they and they were good for braking. They did a series of S-turns that actually slowed the shuttle down mm. and even its heating, which is also what destroyed Columbia. Right. Because the leading edge of the left wing of Columbia had been damaged by the some, foam debris. The, some panels came off, yeah. Well, it shattered the leading edge pa panel. And that, which they didn't realize at the time, ultimately let the heat in. And if they, you know, it's possible if they'd known they could have favored a given turn to try and protect that hole, like... Lots of coulda, woulda, shoulda there, mm -hmm. but if the wings hadn't been there in the first place, if they'd yeah. been much smaller, which they would have been if you don't need that kind of downrange capability, I don't think we would have had that incident. 
But yeah. it's interesting to think about that's a very interesting mission. And as we talk through these other vehicles, remember that mission because all of them have elements around this ability to quickly deploy a satellite in a very rapid turnaround way and then be able to replace it again and again and yeah. again in, in relatively short times. Okay. And, and we also know that the shuttle never came close to delivering on what it was supposed to be. Mm. Uh, a few things re went wrong. Um, before Challenger, which was really when the Air Force walked away from shuttle, before Challenger, they, they were flying payloads. Mm -hmm. The fastest they ever turned a given shuttle around was 54 days. Yeah. After Challenger, which added all these additional checks, the mm. fastest they could turn around a shuttle was 88 days. They mm. did it with Columbia once. Mm -hmm. And the main thing was safety checks. There's so much stuff inside the shuttle that was unique, that wasn't survivable, it failed. Especially after the accident. Yes, you know. that they knew there were more failure modes and they had to inspect them all. And so it's one of the things that made shuttle so expensive was the, just the massive numbers of hours it took to prep them. But it wasn't the only thing wrong with shuttle. Plus, didn't it have a lot of uh, redundancy built in, which adds to the cost. And of course, it makes it safer. It did, but it didn't. And ultimately, didn't make it safe enough you know the triple mm. flight and uh, the, the the triple computing systems the multiple uh fuel cells like they did make a lot of redundancy which added complexity mm. and still there were failure modes that were not survivable mm. and so it was part of the problem shuttle was also overweight by about 20 percent, so it actually couldn't fly a polar orbit at all huh. which is one of the reasons they never did one huh. uh and then they, there was there was efforts to reduce the weight the new tank improved engines mm. but by that time the, the air force had already moved on yeah and so those missions were never actually needed uh the goal of shuttle originally was to get payload down to 250 dollars per kilogram mm. which would be about 1200 dollars per kilo in today's dollars that was the 70s dollars yeah talking today um, in theory, they got the incremental cost. If you took out the build cost, just your flight cost down to about 18,000 a kilo. But if you actually include by the end of the program with the 135 flights and so forth, it was $60,000 a kilo. In fact, one of the most expensive, wow. if not the most expensive flight hardware ever, ever, ever. Holy man. It just didn't ever delivered on what it was supposed to deliver yeah. on. Which if you remember is pretty much why we started doing geek outs in the first That's place. Because right. I was the ranting and shuttle. everything that went wrong with shuttle and, and all of the problems around it and how <laughs> <laughs> could have been better and da 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 yeah. and they never really improved on it because i think it wasn't worth the money not that they had it mm. to do the incremental improvements they could have done to shuttle because its core designs were flawed right putting an orbiter on the side of uh, a rocket is just not a good idea it's yeah. going to be hit by things yeah and one would also argue that mixing payload and people is kind of a mistake as well right um, but reusability is a good idea. And, and the reason I want to talk about this, not just because of the coolness of military, which I really don't feel that way anyway, yeah. but more the, this is where technology gets developed that could benefit spaceflight as a whole. Just recognize they come at it from a different set of motivations. Awesome. Well, before we learn about those, let's take a moment to pause for a word from our sponsor. This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud Platform. You may not know this, but the Google Cloud Platform supports Windows Server 2008, 2012, and 2016. It also supports SQL Server versions 2012, 2014, and 2016 standard web and enterprise editions with high availability. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine. 
That's Google's hosted Kubernetes environment. .NET and .NET Core libraries are there for all 200 plus Google.com and cloud services in NuGet, led by John Skeet of Stack Overflow fame. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. You get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And a great set of partners to bring your Windows and .NET workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. All right, here we are in Oslo, recording face-to-face, doing a geek out on military space planes. So what do they have in store? I mean, you obviously have been looking at some things that I don't know about, right. certainly, and probably our listeners don't know well, about. Well, before we do future, let's do past, because there's a chronology here. Okay. And concepts that will keep recurring over and over and over again. And for, good. Including there was a version of the space shuttle that was supposed to be a two-staged orbit, hmm. a refly-back ref- a vehicle that was going to be massive, 747-sized, and was going to have enough thrust to actually get the shuttle up high enough, and then the shuttle would fly the rest of the way into orbit. Wow. And then that piece would fly back. Mm. Uh, never got built. The arguments whether it would work, but mm. that two-station orbit is an interesting concept. There was also a flyback booster design where there'd be two flyback boosters strapped to shuttle and uh-huh. the tank. So instead of the solid rockets, actually have liquid flyback boosters. Huh. It wouldn't have really saved a whole lot of money. It was a lot more complexity, not enough budget. And ultimately, the orbiter was still flawed. And that sort of ended all of that. Okay. But let's go back. So, you know, 1970s is shuttle. It evolves in the 80s. Challenger crisis in 86. Mm -hmm. uh, And in the meantime, we have the Cold War still going on. Yep. And Reagan's strategic defense initiative. We talked about this in the in the uh, hypersonic show as well, right? right? Because then that was probably the peak of military research spending in the world, right? Certainly the, in the United the, States. Yeah, and for those who don't remember, who weren't alive, the uh, the whole idea behind SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, or otherwise known as Star Wars, was that Reagan was going to have the military build this armada of. Um, whatever they were, rockets that would shoot down nuclear warheads before they hit, before they came back well, and down the, to Earth. And the reason they needed so much lift is they were talking about satellites armed with missiles that could shoot down the the uh, ICBMs. Right. And he he um, famously said, "A nuclear war can be fought and won." Right. And to which the Russians said, "Oh my God, these guys are crazy." And there was always this argument that because of Apollo, the right. Russians believed that the Americans would actually build it because they, they'd about done the moon before, right? right. It's very interesting to sort of look at it that way, that the evidence pointed to this was actually possible if mm. they made those kinds of statements. Right. So towards the end of SDI, because we know the Soviet Union is going to collapse and, and uh, Glasnost and all these things are going to happen, there was a project started by McDonnell Douglas. Mm-hmm. Now, McDonnell Douglas today, and as of 97, is part of Boeing. Right. But this is before that. This is in 91. Mm. That they proposed that we had sufficient technology, given enough budget, to take off the shelf components and build a single stage to orbit spacecraft that took off vertically, flew into space, and then would fly back down and land vertically again. Right. Kind of like what Elon's doing. You kind of like it, except even Elon's doing two stages. Okay. So this was a single stage. This was supposed to be a single stage, but they wanted to start with a prototype. The prototype they called Delta Clipper X for experimental. Okay. And this would be a one-third subscale model that would allow them to fly and test hardware 
is very much fly a little, break a little, learn a little. Mm. And then the next model would be DC-Y, Delta mm -hmm. Clipper Y, which would be a full-scale prototype to become ultimately the DC-1, mm. which would be the production vehicle. I mean, it's a great concept. And mm -hmm. they were tying to, I mean, they, with references to the good old DC-3, the Goonie Bird, mm -hmm. that was a phenomenal, you know, reliable air truck. Right. Now they wanted to build a space truck. And so that was proposed in 91. They start working on it. SDI ends and, you know, realize they're starting on 91. Yeah. The Soviet Union, the walls come down in 89. By 91, the Soviet Union is already unraveling. So they're spending money as quickly as they can. Mm. They build a vehicle that looks, it's it's all off-the-shelf components except for the aero shell, which is actually built by uh, Scaled Composites. Mm -hmm. It's Burt Rutan's company. It mm -hmm. looks an awful lot like a traffic cone. It's really? Just, it's just a big cylinder right that, that goes to a point now it's actually huh. got flat sides on it which they used for maneuvering it's uh, 40 feet tall about 13 feet wide so maybe 12 meters by four meters okay and 90 percent fuel uh in terms of weight it's 19 metric tons at takeoff which is about forty-two thousand pounds right the it has four rl10 engines on it these are off the shelf engines normally used uh for the centaur upper stage on atlas and delta and a, a bunch of other places one of the most famous uh hydrogen oxygen engines but this was a modified version for sea level flight four of those they've got thirteen thousand pounds thrust each so they can literally take off and land again one of the big features on this engine and it's an important thing to note throttleable down to 30 percent thrust most rocket huh. engines cannot throttle that low. You remember we were talking about SpaceX and how they have to do that crazy suicide burn on one engine yeah, to right. land the Falcon 9? It's because it can only throttle down to 60%. Really? So in other words, once you let a rocket go, it's kind of hard to contain it and control it. Well, it's generally you're tuning your engine to maximum thrust. And so the ability to turn it down is really quite difficult. Right. And to turn it way down to be what they call deeply throttle or below 50% is highly unusual. Yeah. And this engine, which, I mean, this engine was originally developed in the 60s. But it had this capability of this deep throttleability, and it made it a lot easier to control. Uh, and so first flight is in August of 1993. It only flies for about a minute, but it's a test vehicle, right? They fly it a couple more times, and then they're basically out of money. SDI is over. NASA and DARPA produce a bit more money in 94 and 95 to continue experimenting with it. And because they, this is one of the first times you see a military contractor kind of doing good public relations. Here mm. is this Buck Rogers looking rocket that's flying over and landing again. Like, right. And no pieces flying off of it. None of those things. Now, admittedly, it's a one third subscale model. It, yeah. It's top flight ever is 10,000 feet. Okay. You know, it never gets that high, but they more or less shame NASA into taking the project over. <laughs> now, at the same time, there's the technology exchange happening with the, now what's the Russian Federation, right? right. Where the U.S. is actually trying to put money into Russia to help it recover from the collapse right. of the Soviet Union. Right. And this is when uh, Lockheed Martin buys all those RD-180 engines for the Atlas V. I remember looking online when the internet was in its youth mm -hmm. to see the federal budget of the United States and the number one line item, and I can't remember when it was, it was in the 90s sometime when the internet was new, but the number one line item was aid to the Soviet Union. You know, I don't think it was ever that much money, but it was important Yeah. in terms of if you let them collapse, and arguably we still did, right? Right. that's where the oligarchs come from and ultimately the rise of Putin in this situation that we're in. Mm. 
But this was the heyday. This was the 90s. The Cold War was over. We were all trying to be friends. And so when NASA took, one of the reasons NASA took the mission on and made an updated version called the DCXA is they used some hardware from the former Soviet Union in the form Mm. of composite tanks and aluminum lithium tanks, Mm. uh, which were lighter. And so the second, the second version of this called the DCXA ran uh, in 1996, but it only lasted that year. Mm. It finally had a major accident. Uh, and there are people, you know, there's competition within different groups at NASA and these, and these other contractors. Mm-hmm. And so this was a very conservative vehicle uh, with a very conservative team. Many of the technicians as this mission to end would go to Blue Origin. Mm-hmm. They would actually be hired away and start working on Jeff Bezos' stuff. Mm. But yeah, it had a, a, a landing strut fail. It tipped over, and the Russian liquid oxygen tank had a crack in it, so it leaked, and it caused a huge fire, burnt the thing out. Yeah, well, the road to success is well, paved with failure. And one would argue the logical thing to do there is now you've learned something, build a new one, go right. again. And it was a relatively inexpensive vehicle. Yeah. But NASA had another vehicle they were working on. Mm essentially the opposite of what the DCXA was. So the DCXA was everything off the shelf. Let's use what we know. Let's incrementally build. We're going to build something great. Okay. But at the same time, starting in 1994, just a couple years uh, after the DCX started, there was the X-33. Now, I heard about the X-33. Have we talked about the X-33 before? I don't think we've ever, We've talked about a few X-planes, and it's easy to get them crossed up. That the, might be the, what's happening. The X-33 was also a subscale orbital vehicle for single-stage to orbit. But what it was was a Lockheed Martin-oriented project where everything was new and original. Mm. They were going to do the most advanced engines, the most advanced heat protection system, mm-hmm. the most advanced tank systems. Mm. And... Maybe they pushed it a little too far. Okay. But in 1996, the proposed vehicle looked like a wedge, essentially, with a pointed nose. So a big uh-huh. triangle-shaped vehicle, uh, 70 feet long, about 20 meters tall when standing on end, and almost as wide, and actually even wider, 77 feet wide, wow. and 23 meters wide. This is still a one-quarter scale model of what oh, it would, should be to be a single-stage orbit vehicle. Wow. So fully fueled, loaded up, it would be 285,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. So five times larger than Delta than Delta Clipper. Mm-hmm. Uh, of that 285,000 pounds, uh, 210,000 being fuel. And again, liquid right. oxygen, liquid hydrogen. Yeah. Right? Tricky engines. Um, because of the shape, because of that triangular shape, they're not, they're, they had to build conformal fuel tanks that were asymmetrical. So instead of doing your traditional tank with a cap on each end and a cylinder, to maximize space, they're not completely straight. Now, if it's asymmetrical, doesn't that mean that the weight balance isn't equally distributed? Well, that's an interesting point, my friend. They had terrible weight issues with this particular yeah. design. And you've got tank, the, the, Liquid oxygen tank more or less in the center. You've got liquid hydrogen tanks running up each side. But Mm. because they're at angles and varying thicknesses, they have to have a tank that conforms with that shape. And there were big concerns. They wanted to build these tanks out of composite materials. And when you hear composite, what should you think? As some kind of carbon fiber or alloy or something? Burnt string is what you should think. Excuse me? The correct thing to think when you hear composite tank is burnt string. And burnt string is essentially what? Carbon fiber. Carbon fiber. Is burnt string. Oh, okay. Right? 
laden with epoxy. I never really thought of it that way, but I guess you're right. Like just it, it's just to suck the mystery out of it, right? Right. Carbon fiber, composite, it all sounds very cool. Burnt yeah. string. Burnt string. No, <laughs> <laughs> not for a little while. Burnt string. Now very carefully laid burnt string. But burnt string nonetheless. Okay. Well, Richard, guess what time it is? Ah, uh, must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to take this show on a Goonie Bird ride to the outer limits of intelligence. (laughs) (laughs) You like the Goonie Bird. What the heck is the Goonie Bird anyway? Ah, the DC-3? Yeah, you mentioned it. Technically, its name was Dakota. But why why did they call it the Goonie Bird? Did Uh, it fly awkwardly or something? It was just so... You know, pilots that love their planes give them funny names. And the DC-3 was one of the most widely built aircraft of all time. It also basically... Ran the Berlin airlift. Like, it was huge in World War II. Okay. It was huge in the Cold War. So, it was a, a term of endearment. It was. Absolutely. Okay. Right. The Goonie Bird. Well, it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Dale Newman. Congratulations, Dale. Yes. I'll clap for you, sir. Yeah, absolutely. And Dale just won the D-Experience subscription from Developer Express, a big pile of awesome from them just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Okay, so carbon fiber. Right. Burnt string. And... The carbon fiber tanks were only for liquid hydrogen because you don't use carbon fiber tanks on liquid oxygen mm. because it's so flammable. The string may be already burnt, but it can easily burst in flame. Do you mean carbon fiber is flammable? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, sure. I knew it was the one of the strongest materials, but I didn't know you could set it on fire. It absolutely will burn. It's got epoxy resin in it to give it its structural shape, which is flammable. Mm. And the fiber itself is flammable as well. But it, when saturated in liquid oxygen, it's even more flammable. Yikes. And arguably one of the things that Elon Musk has cracked when he's talking about his giant ship is they've now figured out the coatings to put inside of carbon fiber tanks so they can put liquid oxygen in them. Wow. And that's, you know, technological progress. But we're talking about the middle 90s. Right. And so the liquid oxygen tanks were actually an aluminum lithium alloy. Mm. Same yeah. stuff that they used for the space shuttle. They were using here. And there's this, you know, again, when you read the technical documentation, you can see the anger of the engineers. They wanted to use aluminum lithium for the liquid hydrogen tanks as well. Yeah. Because it didn't actually save any weight. And it was light. It was very light. light. Well, the thing was interesting about the composite tanks is while the walls of the tank are very light, the transition between the composite to the hull needs these big lugs Mm. that are actually heavy. And so there was was an argument that the tank's weights were going to end up being the same. Mm. But these were some of the largest asymmetrical uh, composite tanks ever made and ultimately destroyed the vehicle. They they Mm. caused it to fail. Did they cause it to fail by catching on fire? No, they caused it to fail by rupturing because it couldn't handle the pressure of liquid hydrogen. Wow, okay. But there was more innovation in the X-33. They were going to use a a special kind of engine called a linear aerospike engine. 
Okay. Is that a great name? And it linear aerospike. Sounds very powerful. And you, you can look it up. There's a lot of variations of the linear aerospike, but here's the core idea. Okay. Rather than in a traditional rocket engine, you have a power head, which is basically a place where the fuel and the oxidizers spray out and mix together into a combustion chamber. Yeah. And then you have a bell that allow that directs that custom chamber through the throat into the bell to create thrust. Okay. Simple, logical. Mm-hmm. The problem is that the bell shape is very important. And it's, you, pr- you're, essentially your thrust is pushing against that bell to accelerate the vehicle. Okay. And the optimal bell shape depends on altitude. Yeah, sure. Right. So on a pressure, f- on a first stage where you have a lot of atmospheric pressure, your bell tends to be narrower to keep that pressure together, giving right. more thrust. But as you get higher, and the pressure goes down, you actually want a wider bell, giving you more room. Now, in a multi-stage vehicle, like, say, the SpaceX Falcon 9, you have different shaped bells. Your first stage has low-altitude bells, mm. and your second stage has what they call a vacuum bell, the mm. wider bell, mm-hmm. right? But now we're going to build a single-stage orbit vehicle. So it's got to change. It's got to change, or you got to do the bell differently. Mm. And in the linear aerospike, you don't have a bell. <laughs> okay. What you're actually doing is leaning, you have a spike. You have one side of a bell, effectively. And in this particular case, it was straight line. So imagine a wedge shape. And at the top mm. edge of the wedge, the thick part of the wedge, you have tiny little rocket engines, a whole bunch of them, little power heads that are pushing out the gases and they're pressing against the aerospike. And it's actually the atmosphere that makes the other part of the bell. Yeah, I'm I'm not visualizing it, but I mean I can theoretically understand how right. it works. I mean, and, and this is where it would be great to have an animation to right. show this thing. And certainly you can look it up to see it. But imagine like a door wedge, a wedge like that, just yeah. a V-shaped thing, yeah. where on both sides of it you have little rocket engines that are firing down the sides of that wedge. I gotcha. And so because there's nothing on the other side, it's mm. actually the atmosphere is shaping oh. that bell. Oh, of course. So as it starts out at sea level. You have a fairly narrow cone, yeah. but as you go up, it will just naturally widen. That makes perfect sense. There's lots of little details to making this work well, but one of the upsides to this design is that because you have so many little engines, it's naturally deeply throttleable. Mm. In the first attempt of this design, which they call the XRS2200, they could throttle down to 20% thrust. Wow, that's good. Very deep throttling. Yeah. And rather than having a gimballing system so you can actually change the angle of the motor to do maneuvering, you can vary the thrust on the individual cells. Oh, okay. So you don't move the engine at all. You literally just more thrust on one side, tips it that way. More thrust at one end, tips it the other way. How many engines are we talking typically? Uh, Heads. These are J2 heads, so there's about 15 per engine or wow. 14 per engine. So it's enough granularity, and there were going to be two engines like this. That's cool. Uh, optimal, full maximum performance, 400,000 pounds of thrust. That's a serious class engine. Wow. Uh, and their cores were actually derived from the J2 engine, which so, was a rival of the RLL-10 engine, by the way. Uh, so did it fly? No. <laughs> <laughs> They actually tested these engines at full thrust. So these engines got tested. They are mm. fairly real. There was a few mistakes made in the design. They had cooling problems because you don't have the bell for the same way to reheat fuel and mm. manage in the heating. Mm-hmm. Um, they were very heavy. Mm. And because they're sticking out of the back of the of the vehicle, it creates weight balance yeah, problems. And there's right. some arguments that those are just bad choices that they made. Mm. There were light ways to make the engine lighter. But it just speaks to a very different philosophy from the Delta Clipper. Right. Everything was original and new and innovative. And so, yeah, they never even got to flying. 
Wow. Ultimately, the rupture of the hydrogen tank, uh, at that point, they spent over a billion dollars on it. Mm. They shut it down. The intent to go beyond the X-33, the next vehicle up was a vehicle going to be called Venture Star. Okay. It was supposed to be ready by 2005. And this was your single stage to orbit vehicle, mm. which was supposed to be 40 meters high, about 130 feet, close to the same size as the space shuttle, a little bit bigger. Okay. And almost as wide with seven of those RS-2200 uh, engines side okay. by side to put about 3 million pounds of thrust and should have been able to lift a 27 metric ton payload. So were those heads bigger because there were less of them? Were they more powerful? The, on, on the engine side, these yeah. are exactly the same kinds of engines, oh, just more of those engines. Oh, I so see. where there's two of them in the X-33, now there's going to be seven in the Venture Star. Oh, oh, seven, but the individual heads, you, yeah. where you said there were 15 heads? Seven aside. Yeah. Seven aside. So now you have a whole bunch of heads. I gotcha. But, and for better or worse, this was a very high risk, high reward kind of project. And mm. when the tanks failed, which was kind of unfair, they, they should have just built uh, aluminum lithium engines, right. but they'd spent enough on it that that failure was just an excuse to cancel it. Mm. And for the most part, at, in two, by 2001, research into single stage to orbit has, has shut down. Hmm. They sort of backed away from the whole thing mm. at that point. And you think about 2001, this is the end of the dot-com boom, yep. the economic downturn. It was yep. a good time to be saving money. And for the most part, after the Cold War, you know, in the Clinton years, yeah. they cut a lot of money out of the military. Yeah, that's right. And so you kind of go back to DARPA, you know, the the the, the defense research agency that sure. brought us the internet in the first place, yep. uh, who had been part of these early conversations. Uh, in 2001, they say, okay, well, we still have the mission, right? Right. The mission of getting rapid fire payloads up. You know, one of the goals of the X-33, although this was never really validated, is that the ground crew would be small. They would plan to do two flights in a week to show these rapid turnarounds, like all of those kinds of things it was a big focus of it. Hmm. So DARPA lit up a new project, scaling down the effort. They called the Response Access Small Cargo and Affordable Launch, a.k.a. Okay. Rascal. <laughs> the great name, Rascal. Rascal. So the DARPA Rascal project started in 2001, uh, and it was basically a proposal to say, we want to fly small satellites into orbit for less than $20,000 a kilogram. Wow. And when you say small, we're talking 50 to 150 kilo satellites. Okay. Those are quite small. Yeah. But we want to do it kind of a military style. So we're talking about a, an oversized fighter plane. A big fighter plane taking off from a military runway, flying to high altitude, firing an expendable rocket off its back mm. that then goes into orbit. Right? Wow. The flight profile went like that, that you would take off, you would fly up to 100,000 feet at Mach 4 in a zoom climb. Mach 4 this time, it's 2001, they haven't done this yet. Hmm. The engine shut down because you run out of fuel, you run out, out, out of oxygen. You glide to 150,000 feet, you release the rocket, and then you fall back down to Earth. And when you get back up into Mach 4 or so, get down to subsonic, relight your engines, and fly home. Now, all these planes that you've talked about so far don't seem like they would be carrying satellites up to up to space. They, they could, but we're talking small sats, okay. right? The, the, the cube sats types. When you're talking 150 so kilo satellite, it's pretty small. So are they still being developed for use uh, of satellite replacement and repair or are there Absolutely. other military uses for these planes as well? These are these are to replace communication satellites, those sorts of things. I gotcha. Right? Although again, they're starting small because they want something to work. Yeah. And so I think they were really modeling this off. Can we make a super F-15 fighter jet? That could actually do this. The F-15 actually had did do tests with anti-satellite 
technology where they it would do a zoom climb and fire a rocket that had a weapon payload to destroy mm. a satellite mm. they proved that would work and then they stopped this was a scaled up version of that so they could actually launch an effective payload and so in 2002 they actually went to six different teams to do their initial phase one reviews and some of these teams are ones you expect like northrop grumman yeah but some of them were tiny like x core which would later try and make a different kind of space plane so mm. what i like about this story at this time is you're starting to see the emergence of new commercial space flight right what so this is two, after 2001 after 2002 2003 somewhere right. in there so yeah. after the downturn yeah. from from the dot-com bust and, right and so they're being very efficient and by march of 2003 they'd only selected one company a company called space launch systems which really has never done very much since but okay their design was a kind of super f-15 like i've described an eighty thousand mm. pound aircraft with four engines in it instead of two mm. and their clever bit of technology was a thing called the mass injected pre-compressor cooling that sounds awesome it's a great name so in front of the raw uh, of the jet engines as they got to higher altitude they would spray water in front of the engines okay to cool the turbines so yeah overheat to provide additional mass so it continued to have thrust right as you get that high there's less and less air available you haven't got a lot to push out the back okay, of the engines sure. and as you got even higher they'd switch to liquid oxygen Mm. Which again, keep the engine running, keep it cool, squeeze a little more thrust out of it as it gets higher and higher and higher. Interesting. So just ways to trick those regular jet engines into flying that much faster, that much higher. And I thought my mom's Saab Turbo was cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, funding dries up somewhere around 2004, 2005. And you'll yeah. never guess why. 2004, 2005. Nope, I can't guess why. DARPA, ever the pragmatic research arm, bumped into another project they found very interesting. Oh, was that the automated vehicles? No, they were working on that project well. We were talking other ways to get to space. Okay. There was a new commercial space company called Space Exploration Technologies Corporation, which had been formed in 2002. Right. You know it as? SpaceX. Why, yes, you do, yeah. right? And they had a rocket they called the Falcon 1. Right. That, that based on specifications, was going to be able to fly a 450-kilo satellite into low Earth orbit for about $6 million, or so mm. about 13000 a kilo. And That's if you Really Paul, cheap. Rascal was trying to get to twenty thousand, right? And these guys were going to be able to do it for thirteen. And the space shuttle was doing it for eighty. Right? Well, sixty. Oh, sixty. Well, uh, nominally thirteen if you took out the vehicle cost. But okay. let's you know go where we got to go. Yeah. But of course, the, that sucked the money out of the Rascal project. They put it into the Falcon One. Mm. And if you recall the history of Falcon One, the first three rockets failed. Yeah, that's right. And the last two succeeded, proving the model. And then they stopped flying Falcon One and switched over to Falcon Nine. I'll never forget when we were, where were we? We were in Scotland and watching the launch of one of those Falcons. Mm -hmm. I think it might have been the first one, wasn't it? I think it was the first Falcon Nine. First Falcon Nine. Yeah. Uh, on on the internet in the bar. Yes. And uh, and then it just went dark. <laughs> <laughs> Things just went dark. Now, um, so that's a cool story, and I'm very yeah. happy that that worked out the way it did. And, and for better or worse, that rascal concept went away at yeah. that point. Right. Um, but it'll be back, don't you worry. Okay. Uh, I got to talk, if we're going to talk about military space planes, we have to talk about another one that's been around for a while and flown regularly. 
called the X-37B. Okay. Also known as the Orbital Test Vehicle. So we got to back up a little bit because we got up to the, the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. But in 99, NASA's working on another project called the Orbital Test Vehicle where they really want to take a bunch of the science of the shuttle, which is only going to have a few more years, right. and start experimenting with a smaller version of the vehicle. Okay. And the, the uh, and the X-37 was substantially smaller. We're talking 30 feet long versus the 120 feet long of the space shuttle and about yeah. 15 feet wide. It's a small vehicle, uh, fully loaded, five metric tons or about 11,000 pounds. Okay. Uh, single engine on the back of it called an AR2, which is probably a hypergolic engine. Um, by 2004, around the time that Rascal ends and they're working on Falcon 1, mm-hmm. the Air Force takes over this project, mm-hmm. matures it into what the B variant, mm-hmm. uh, and then starts flying them uh, after a few years uh, in 2010 on the back of the Atlas V. Oh. So they actually did four flights on the Atlas V, and, and originally it was supposed to fly on a Delta II, which is a much cheaper, simpler rocket. Right. But they were afraid, because this is a space plane, so it's got wings and things, they were afraid to have it exposed to ascent. Oh. So they actually enclosed it in a shroud in the Atlas V. And so the Atlas V was big enough to put a shroud around the X-37. Yeah, the Atlas V was huge, wasn't it? It's a big it? rocket, still flies today. Yeah. Uh, and that's the one that flies on the RD-180s, the Russian engines that everybody's upset about. Right, right. So first flight was in 2010. In April of 2010. And its its original design lifespan for flights was 270 days, mm-hmm. which is really long to be able to fly back down. And the payloads are secret because it's Air Force. Right. So, and generally, they, they're able to be tracked because they're in space. And so, am- amateur astronomers quickly figured out where their orbit was mm-hmm. and noticed interesting things about the orbit that the first one was in. It was in a 40-degree inclined orbit so that it flew over the same point every four days. Hmm. So it's just a repeating orbit, which sort of speaks to it may have had been testing some surveillance equipment. Yeah, maybe. Certainly in the first flights, they were just making sure things work. It's got a solar panel that has to unfurl. It's got a payload bay. Uh, and when it came back to land in December of 2010, it was the first time that a runway-based space plane landed completely autonomously in America. Wow. Which is kind of cool. That is kind of cool. But not the first time it had ever been done because the Soviets flew the Buran in 1988 exactly once, unmanned, and landed successfully. And the Buran was the size of the shuttle. Good on them. Yeah. Pretty interesting. So there's been... It's, it's always been said it's an experimental vehicle for testing various things. So the flight, there was a flight in 2011 that stayed up for 468 days. <laughs> the third flight in 2012 stayed up for 674 days. Wow. So up in December 2012, down in October 2014. Jeez. And the fourth flight just recently landed, went up in May 2015, stayed up for 718 days, landed in May of 2017. Now, when they're up there for 700 days, they're not burning fuel. They're just coasting in orbit, right? Well, it flies a low Earth orbit, about 250 miles or so. So it's sort of the same orbit as the space station, yeah. although in different inclinations, so they'll never see each other. And that's low enough that you have atmospheric drag. Okay. And so you actually have to regularly fire the engine to maintain that orbit. But they still have enough fuel to be able to do it every once in a while. And it's not- a light, relatively lightweight vehicle, so it has a fairly right. decent delta V. It also needs that engine to deorbit properly. Right. Right. And amateur astronomers have always tracked this vehicle closely because it's interesting, Yeah, right? sure. And you even can find a few pictures on the internet from really good telescopes catching at the right angle so that you can sort of see the outline of the vehicle and you can see the big solar panel that deploys off one oh, side. Oh, wow, neat. So my gap, and they've rarely talked about any elements of the mission. This last one that just landed, they did admit they have a Hall effect thruster on, which is an electric thruster, which is interesting that they were testing there. Yeah. And a lot of long duration material sciences. Like if you actually wanted to know how well a piece of material survived in space for a year, mm. 
other than the space station, there's just not a lot of choices, yeah. right? And it's expensive. The fact that you can refly the same vehicle over and over again. And I think more saliently in that payload, there's enough room to put a, a substantial surveillance sensor yeah. for testing purposes. And the fact that they have repeating orbits so they could fly over the same location over and over again and take all, a new picture or take a new test. All indicates that it was a surveillance rocket. It's yeah. a, it's a, a platform for testing surveillance equipment. That's okay. my thought is that yeah. that's what it's about. And the interesting news just recently announced is they're going to fly it again in hmm. August 2017 hmm. on a Falcon 9. Wow, that's neat. So Elon won the X-37B flight. Good on him. And, and they've, they've talked a little bit of a couple of the missions that are going to be on board that thing, but not a whole lot. Uh, if you study the X-37B for any length of time at all, you will fall into conspiracy theory th sites. Okay. There are people out there that are convinced that this device is used to create earthquakes in different parts of the world. Like, ah. it's all kinds of nuttiness. But you will see a conversation around a thing called the space fence. Space fence? The space fence. I've never heard of the space fence. Space, Do tell. The space fence is real. The space fence is a very large aperture radar array that the Americans operate to track things in space. It's mm. actually fairly tough to locate objects in space accurately. Yeah. That is to say, you can generally find there's something there, but you don't know how high it is and you don't know how big it is. Because something that's big but very far away looks an awful lot like something small but fairly close up. So are we talking about asteroid detection? It's not. It's really for uh, spacecraft detection. It okay. could do asteroid detection, but it's in a fixed location, and it's a very large set of antennas. Okay. And so where you have vehicles that have routine orbits that will pass over the space vents, it's a good way mm. to detect things. And it's clearly been used for that in a number of cases. And again, the amateur astronomers, having tracked the X-37 successfully, have shown that consistently it flies over space fence locations. Okay. And there's a couple of ways I could take this that, that I feel okay about. One is just testing the space fence makes sense, but I could also see them trying to test whether or not they can build a vehicle that can't be detected by space fence technology. Right, right. Because there is, in military parlance, the ability to maneuver in orbit and say, disable an enemy spy satellite in a way that's deniable that you can't tell that you did it it just looks yeah. like it failed yeah that's a pretty interesting capability and it's mm. been an argument about the x-37 all along mm. and I, I don't know how much of it is actually true mm -hmm. but it's reasonable yeah, okay. far more reasonable than creating earthquakes we'll yeah let, we'll let that one go yeah and so we come to today. Yes. And the piece i wanted to talk about the most which was just very recently announced by darpa Okay. Called the Experimental Space Plane, or XS-1. Sounds like a laptop I had in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the big ones get like that. So, yeah. you know, the X-37 I just talked about, right. built, by, built by Boeing. That's yep. why it looks a lot like a space shuttle, because they right. built the space shuttle. Right. They're a group called Phantom Works, which is the Boeing equivalent of Lockheed Martin's Skunk, Skunk Works, Works that made right. the SR-71. Yeah. So, Phantom Works also has won the contract for the XS-1. This is a doozy, my friend. Okay, lay it on me. This is a vehicle uh, designed to be a single-stage booster vehicle to launch an expendable upper stage and then land like an aircraft again. An expendable upper stage. Yes. So that's not unusual. Think okay. about Rascal was supposed sure. to be a, a, a supersized jet fighter that would then launch an expendable upper stage. Mm -hmm. This time they're saying dedicated custom vehicle specifically for doing that, a hypersonic capable vehicle. We're talking... The size of a commercial jetliner. 
Wow. So 737 size, not sure. 747 size, but 737 size. Okay. About 100 feet long and 24 feet wide with a 62-foot wingspan. Okay. That's maybe 85% of the size of the shuttle orbiter. All right. So just think about, and very much the same kind of shape. Again, coming from Boeing. So it's got right. the same kind of shape. Only this time, no solid rocket boosters, no external tank. Everything is in the vehicle. Really? So if you get rid of the payload base, get rid of the cockpit, get rid of all that, it's all tank. How do they do that? Exactly that way, right? It's just, if you get, most of the shuttle was empty space to carry payload. Mm. This time they're going to put the payload on top and it's small. I see. Right? We're only talking about uh, a 1,500 pound payload. Okay. Okay. But the goal is 10 flights in 10 days. Wow. So maximum turnaround capability, right? Guess is very much a military capability. Very much. It's going to take off vertically. So like the space shuttle does, but completely self-contained. Okay. Fly up to reach hypersonic speed, probably Mach 4, Mach 5 without any external boosters. Get to a peak altitude of 200,000 feet or so. Mm -hmm. Then release the, 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 the rocket and, and that rocket goes the rest of the way to orbit. Then it turns around flying backwards fires its engines to decelerate and comes back into a landing at the same runway it took off from. And the expendable second stage has the satellites on it. That's right. And it just goes up even further and then pumps them off and then crashes into the ocean somewhere. Well, it'll actually burn up in orbit way, oh. way far later because it's it's going to go to the high altitude place where the satellites need to. And then the satellites are going to round out their orbits and it'll re-enter on its own. Got it. If you think about it, it's pretty much doing the same thing that the first stage of the Falcon 9 does. Mm -hmm. The Falcon 9, that first stage pushes that second that second stage in payload mm. up to roughly the same dimensions, and it turns around and flies back. So now Boeing is sort of competing with SpaceX. In some respects. In their own way. But they're also, what's interesting is this design looks remarkably light what Boeing proposed for the X-33 and lost the competition to Lockheed Martin. Okay. So these same designs get retreaded over and over again. Yeah. And again, very much shaped like the shuttle. Neat. But meant to turn around way faster than SpaceX could ever do it. Right, right. SpaceX is still doing typical rocket integration. You know, it takes time to put those things together. Right. 10 flights in 10 days is an incredible goal. And, it, and roughly at 5 million a flight, so incredibly huh. cheap payload. Yeah, that's very cheap. Right. So what level of confidence do you have that they can actually pull it off? I think we're at the right time technologically. Composite tanks now work, right? They've mm -hmm. pretty much been figured out. So that issue that took down the X-33 and has been problems for others, that's a little more feasible. The new external coatings to protect the vehicle for re-entry mm -hmm. are, are much more mature. And this vehicle only goes Mach 5. So... Oh. Maybe a little more. We're not really sure at this point. So they dialed down the speed of the rocket so that they could increase the turnaround time, right. which they is can really ultimately more important. And if you think about it, even going all the way back to shuttle, we've been talking about having a hypersonic mothership in one form or another for quite a while. Right. This is still an experimental vehicle for a small payload. If you can make the 100-foot-sized version work, yeah. maybe you can make a bigger one that works even further. Sure. And again, Boeing is tapping their skills. This is going to only have one engine on it, but that engine is derived from the space shuttle engine. Neat. So it's a very, very powerful engine. And they are going to be flying at, hyper at hypersonic speeds, which, you know, they're going to push a lot of things there. So this is just been basically assigned to Boeing now. They've gotten their budget. They're supposed to have a design review next year for test flights in 2020. Wow. 
Um, it's not not long from now. Not long, but and I, you know, if we run down the history of all these vehicles we've experimented with, so far they've pretty much all failed, except right. for traditional rockets. Right. So I bring it up because the military keeps trying this problem right. over and over and over again. Maybe right. this is the one. Maybe that can actually take it where it needs to go. Maybe we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. And uh, that's going to be another great show when that happens. We've got a couple of years to go. I guess we're going to have to keep doing these I guess things. Guess we'll have to. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. It's always great talking to you about this stuff. You bet, buddy. Good fun. All right. We'll see you next time on Dotnet Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a